Well, good morning, Red Hills Church. So good to see you, everyone online. I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Um, I want to just remind you uh, before I jump into the message today that there are still room in our tribes. They're filling up. They're almost full. Uh, but if you haven't signed up, uh, I want to encourage you to find one to be a part of, be involved in. Uh, a lot of them follow our message series. So the questions are around what I'm going to talk about for the next uh, six weeks. So you can go ahead and do that. Uh, I want to remind you that our church, it's okay to not be okay. You can come as you are and our hope is that, that you are changed by the grace of Jesus. I know this. As a pastor, there is nothing I can do to change you. I can only persuade and preach and talk and speak and give my heart out about Jesus, but it is the grace of Jesus that changes your life. As a people, we just need to be open for uh, him to change us and the Holy Spirit to change us. And so that's my prayer for you today as we jump in and that we are changed by the grace of Jesus uh, today. Well, we're starting a brand new series called The Five. And I want to tell you the genesis of the series is uh, that um, as I uh, planned and prayed and thought about 2022 and where I really wanted to start the year off, I mean, I know we're in February, but we're still at the beginning of the year, uh, is that I, I, I wanted to uh, reorient our lives around Jesus. Because the last two years have been crazy and chaotic. There's been a lot of voices. There's been a lot of opinions. There's been a lot of things to believe in. There's been a lot of decisions decisions that people have made. Uh, and, and I wanted to take this time to just refocus, to not talk about everything that's happening in the world, but just like get back to the basics of what we are called to do. And so this series called The Five is about this. It's about the five most important decisions that you'll ever make. That's pretty audacious, isn't it? I want to ask you a question. And everyone online, I told you beforehand, I was going to ask you to respond as well. So I'm going to do a little interactive with online, a little interactive in the room. Are you with me? So we make a lot of decisions every single day. I want you to tell me how many decisions you think we make every day. So if you're online, just write it in the chat. Uh, I think it's like 45 seconds behind, so I got to wait for that. Everyone in the room, just someone shout it out. How many decisions do you think you make in a day? 200. All right, got a 200. Anyone else? I, I heard blah, 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 blah. 6,000. All right, that's a lot. Anyone else? Come on, four. Four. What am I going to eat? All right. Uh, what, what else? Anyone online? No one online yet. Come on, online people. Like, just engage in this for a little bit. All right, so we got 6,000. We got four. We got 200. Uh, anyone else? 23,000, all right, 23,000, that's a lot, all right, no one online, maybe, oh, okay, John Grover, 30,000, 30,000, anyone else, that's a lot of decisions, all right, Sheila says 523, Jared says 45,000, Kate Swanson says 3,500, here, I did the research, all right, on Google, because it's kind of like where we do research now. You make 35,000 decisions every single day. All right. 
That's a lot of decisions. Most decisions you make, you don't realize that you're making, but you're making those decisions. That means that every minute of the day, if you were awake for 24 hours, that you would be making 24 decisions every minute. That means every two seconds you are making a decision throughout the day. And during your waking hours, it's probably a couple decisions for every second that you make. Some of you are making decisions right now. You're making decisions if I should check out, like mentally, what the pastor's talking about, like, like, am I going to take notes? Like, I mean, I know, like, like, like I'm making decisions while I'm talking to you right now. Like, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about lunch. I'm thinking about when my family's going to be here. Uh, so we make decisions every day. I did the math because I like to extrapolate data. I'm a numbers person. Uh, and that means this. If you make 35,000 decisions every day, it means every year you make 12 million decisions. 12 million decisions. It's a lot of decisions. If I extrapolate that out to the average life of a human, let's just say 80 years, that means in your lifetime, you make one billion decisions. All right, that is a lot of decisions that you and I will make in our lifetime. One billion decisions in your life. Now, obviously, some of those are more important than others. Some of those you don't realize that you're making. And what I want to do for the next six weeks is I want to tell you out of the one billion decisions that you will make, it's pretty audacious of me, I want to tell you five most important decisions that you will ever make out of the one billion that you make. Maybe the several the hundreds of thousands that you consciously make, I'm going to boil this down to five decisions that are the most important than you can imagine. Why is that? Well, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. That your destination in your life is determined by the decisions that you make. Your destination is determined by your decision. The trajectory of your life is determined by the choices that you make. Listen, where you are headed in life, your spiritual life, your physical life, your financial life, your mental life, you know, whatever aspect of your life, where you are headed is not determined by your intentions. How many of you heard the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? It is not your intentions that determine the trajectory of your life. It is your decisions. It is not your wishes. It is not even your hope. It is your decisions that determine your direction. And some of you thinking, Aaron, is this biblical? Well, just let me show you through a few characters in the Bible, some of the major characters, and show you the decisions that they made, good, bad, and ugly, all right? Eve, Adam and Eve, first characters that we see in the Bible, human characters we see in the Bible. Uh, Eve had a choice to eat of the fruit or not eat of the fruit, and she chose to eat of the fruit. Adam had a choice when Eve offered the fruit to him, to eat of it or not, and he ate it. Adam had a choice to take responsibility, but what did he do? He blamed his wife. All right, that's the immaturity of, of what men can do is blame other people. All right, so let's fast forward to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Abraham had a choice to leave his home country and go to the land that he had no idea what was there and what God was doing, but to follow God's voice to the land of Canaan, and he chose to do so. His son Isaac had a choice. When Abram brought Isaac up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice his life, uh, you know, you remember the story, I, Isaac's like, where is the ram that you're going to sacrifice? And Abram's, well, you are, son. All right. And he wraps, you know, and puts him on the altar. Isaac had a choice to jump off the altar. Abraham had a choice to go through with that, lay him on the altar. What about Jacob, Isaac's son? Jacob had a choice to deceive Esau. 
Joseph's brother had a choice to throw them in the pit. Joseph had a choice to follow God in Potiphar's house and in the prison. Are you with me? Caleb had a choice when they scouted the land of Canaan to be the, the dissenting voice of everyone else, of where the crowd was going. They're saying, we can't take that land. And Caleb and Joshua are saying, yes, we can take that land. Joshua made a choice to lead Israel through the Jordan River. Listen, Jesus made a choice. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, take this cup from me. He's talking about the, 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 the life that he has to go through, but not my will, let your will be done. The trajectory of your life is determined by the choices and decisions you make. This is important, this is important because of this. I want you to follow this line of thought with me for a moment. I'm gonna give you three things. The first one is this, is that God has a plan and purpose for my life. God has a plan and purpose for my life. Many of you know this verse in Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. So God has plans for our life. And God's destiny, it's the next thing I want you to write down, is discovered by the decisions that you make. Listen, as a, a, a people, as a, a church, uh, as, as Christians, we don't believe in fate, right? We, we don't believe like in, in uh, coincidences. We don't, we don't believe that like, that like everything has been predetermined. It doesn't matter what we do that it won't affect our life. We actually believe in the sovereignty of God, but we, we believe in human free will and human responsibility, and so here's the last thing I want you to understand is this, is that the plans and promises of God in your life do not happen by coincidence, they happen by obedience. They do not happen by coincidence, they happen by obedience. And they happen through your daily decisions to follow Jesus. Your daily decisions to follow Jesus. Let me, under, let, me, let me kind of describe it in this way. I don't know if you've ever been in a church or been in a meeting or had a friend come give you a prophetic word. All right, every once in a while, I don't operate in the prophetic very often, but I will give a word. I'll say someone here is, you know, and, and I'll give something. And, and, and I've been given prophetic words before. I mean, I remember just as a little boy in church, like the old ladies coming up to me saying, you're going to be a pastor someday, right? And, and you have a choice when you're given a prophetic word. By the way, prophecy in the New Testament is not fortune telling. All right, you're giving a prophetic word, which is an encouraging word, and you have a choice to step into that word. It's not like this is going to be your future. It isn't like reading your cards or reading your mail. Or It is a word that has potential over your life, and you have a choice to walk into that prophetic word or not walk into that prophetic word. Paul says it this way. He says, I press on to take hold of that, which Christ Jesus took hold of me. It also says this, Paul says this, that all the promises in God are yes and amen. Did you know that the promises in the Bible are for you? You can hold on to those and you can, uh, you can have those, but you've got to step into those. You've got to walk into those. You've got to decide to walk into the plans and future of God. So the five most important decisions that you'll ever make are around these five themes. I'm gonna give them to you and I'm gonna go through the first one. They all start with an F. I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't do alliteration, all right? 
I asked my communications director, I almost called this F words, but I thought, she goes, no, we shouldn't do that. So uh, we're going to talk about faith today. We're going to talk about faith. Uh, we're going to talk about family next week. We're going to talk about friends, the people you hang out with, do shape, and determine your future. They can help you or they can hurt you. We're going to talk about your finances. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about money, about wealth. Jesus said a lot about it. We're going to talk about your future. So the five most important decisions are going to be around these themes in your life. The, the faith, family, friends, finances, and future. And the first thing I want to talk about is faith. Faith does two things. Faith, why is faith so important? That faith shapes who we are. Faith shapes who we are. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to mind when you think about God, when you think about the transcendence, when you think about kind of like, you know, what's in heaven, when you think about, you know, whatever faith or God that you have, it, it actually determines what you think about yourself. Faith shapes our identity. Your belief system informs what you think about you, yourself. Listen, we are an image of what we worship. You reflect and radiate the very thing that you worship. Here's what's interesting. I think God actually planned it this way for humanity. In Genesis, it says that we were created in the image of God. You've read those verses, right? The Latin is the imago Dei, and a lot of people ask, well, what is the image of God? The image of God is what separates us from every other species out there. Now, a lot of people think it's a soul, but the soul doesn't. And the, uh, read Genesis, it says animals have souls, right? And the soul in the Hebrew language means kind of the whole parts of the body and the, you know, the, the interior of a, of, of, a, of a living creature. So the thing that separates humans from all the animal kingdom is the fact that we have the Imago Dei, the image of God. And the image of God does two things. It houses the presence of God within us, and it reflects and radiates the presence of God to the world. So, so think about the words. The image of God means this, that we are to image God to the world. In the ancient Near East culture, when a, uh, when a leader, a ruler, would uh, take territory, they would put uh, statues of themselves around the territory so that when people came into that land, they would recognize who leads this land. God created humans to be that image to the world. To, to, to be that reflection and that radiant glory of God to the world. We are an image of what we worship. So faith shapes who we are. Faith also shapes what we do. Faith shapes what you do. What you believe, a lot of you know this, determines how you behave. You know, your belief system determines the actions that you take in life. All of the choices and decisions in your life is determined by you how you answer this question. Everything is what do you believe? This isn't just for Christians. This isn't just for religious people. This is for every living human on the planet is guided and directed and make choices and decisions based on this question. What do you believe? What do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the world? What do you believe uh, about your, yourself? Everyone has a belief system. Even atheists have a belief system. They might call it reason, but what is reason? Reason is an intellectual understanding or rationalization. It's in the mind, but did you know that belief is in the mind as well? See, God has wired us to have a faith system 
to experience transcendence and to experience God. I believe Jesus talks about this faith system and he talks about it in the book of Luke. So we'll get this scripture up on the screen. Luke chapter six, verse 43 through 45. This is what Jesus says. He says this. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. I believe Jesus is talking about your faith system, your belief system. The very next teaching, Jesus talks about where to build your house, on the rock or the sand. He's talking about foundations. So he's talking about your foundational, your belief systems in life. And he uses an analogy from biology, and he compares your life, or, or maybe more specific, he compares your heart to a tree. And he says the, the condition of your heart determines the fruit that you produce. Your belief system determines the actions, the fruit, the result of your life. So what you believe in actually matters. This is why it's important in life, in your life, at some point to do the hard work emotionally of dismantling false belief systems that you have. You know that all of us have been given an operating system by the experiences through our life. I call them false belief systems. And a false belief system, it's false, and most people around you can see that it's false, but when it's in your life, you believe that it's true. I like to say it this way. A lie becomes a truth when someone speaks over you, not just when they speak it over you. I've been called bad things before. All right, anybody else? All right. I've been called bad things as a pastor before. It only becomes truth when I believe in the lie. That's when it enters my heart, my understanding, my mind, and that's a false belief system. And this can manifest itself in many different ways, and you can receive these in many different ways by your parents, by your friends, by your peers, by the people around you, that you can believe something that is not true, and you have a belief system that shapes how you act. It shapes what you do. It's a false belief system. Now, I've done an entire sermon on a false belief system, so I won't go there but I want to continue to talk about faith. What faith actually means. So, so faith in the Bible, I actually want to talk about three words. I want to talk about faith, a belief, and faithfulness. And if you're new to the Bible, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And the Greek word for faith is the word uh, pistis. All right? It's an interesting word, pistis. That's the word faith. Now, faith is a noun. Belief the Greek word for belief is uh, pisteu, pisteu. That is the same root word, but it's the verb form. And faithful uh, is, uses the same root word, and the Greek word for faithful is pistos, and that's an adjective. So faith is something that you have. Belief is something that you do, and faithful is something that you are. It's all kind of the same word around the same idea and the same word. And at the core of what faith means, to have faith, to do faith, to be faithful, is all about this. It's all about trust. 
It's all about trust. It's to have trust, to give trust, and to walk in trust. So to say, I believe in Jesus, is not just or only an intellectual understanding of doctrinal statements, right? It isn't. To believe in Jesus is to receive his trust and to give your trust to him. That's what faith and belief actually is. Now, doctrine matters. What you intellectually think about God matters. But it's giving him trust. The core of what faith means is to have trust. Not in some abstract way, but in a very concrete way. So this is what I want to do with the remainder of our time. I want to talk about two myths that I've seen Christians believe, and I've been a pastor for 20 years, and they believe about, about faith, specifically about faith. So I want to give you two myths. I want to give you two truths about faith. So myth number one is this. The first myth, and then I'm going to balance it with a truth, is that the Bible demands big faith. That God asked me to have a lot of faith. In the words of George Michael, I gotta have faith, faith, faith. All right, it's just something that you gotta have. And you've gotta have a lot of it. Like if you wanna go to heaven when you die, you've gotta have big faith. If you wanna see miracles happen, you've gotta have big faith. And people who believe that you've gotta have big faith believe in this, that the Bible is primarily a book of instruction. I, I've always disliked the uh, acronym that people overlaid on the word Bible, which Bible actually just means book, or collection of books. Um, and, and they say this, you've, you've heard this, basic instructions before leaving earth. And if you look, or, or maybe like some coach gets up at like, you know, uh, FCA, and they say the Bible is a playbook. All right, and if we just run the right plays then your life is going to work out. All right, God is speaking to us right now. <laughs> and, and people look at the book as, as, and maybe if they're not a Christian, they look at the book as a collection of rules, of do's and don'ts. And maybe you are a Christian, you look at the Bible like that. It's, it's a bunch of commands. I mean, the Old Testament has 613 commands. If you read all the commands, I mean, there's a lot of commands in the Bible. And you think to be close to Jesus is to do all the commands. All right, the, the Bible is an instruction book. If I follow and do what the Bible says, then I will be, okay, if you believe that the Bible is a set of rules or a handbook to life, then you've missed the point. Because the Bible tells a continuous story of God coming to humanity to have a relationship with them. You see, the, the Bible is a love story. It's a love story where the center uh, 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 character is Jesus who dies on the cross and gives his life so that humans can have a relationship with God. I mean, I mean, the point of the message of Scripture, there are a lot of things that we can do and we don't do, but the point of Scripture is to tell you that God loves you and that he wants you to have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And faith is trust. It is giving your life to him. And God will do anything to cultivate a relationship with his people. The Bible is all about God coming to man. 
not man going to God. Just think about all the things like the spirit comes down in the water, Jesus comes down to earth. It's all about God reaching humanity here on earth. And God would do anything, including putting to death his own son. So what's the truth? God doesn't ask us to have big faith. He asks us to have little faith. So you think, what what do you mean, little faith? Well, let me tell you, Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said this, I can guarantee this truth. If your faith is the size of a, help me out, mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? One time, it was like seven years ago, my family, we, I did a sermon series on the mustard seed in faith, and we packed 500 little tiny bags of mustard seeds, and we gave them out to the church. And my kids will never forget that, because it took us about three hours. But they're tiny. And Jesus chooses to use the seed that everyone knows that's tiny, and relate that to our faith. He could have he said, like, our faith is like a, a watermelon, Right. Or a jackfruit. You've seen those things in the store, those massive. Like, but he didn't. He says, Your faith the size of a mustard seed. And so faith that is asked of God and asked of Jesus is not big faith. It's actually little faith. It's small amounts of faith. And faith is this. If you want to have big faith, you have big faith from a series of small daily decisions of little faith to trust and follow. Jesus. Let me say this point to you and then I want to illustrate it. It is the object of your faith that saves you. It is not the quality of your faith. It is the object of your faith, not the quality of your faith that saves you. Let me kind of illustrate this. Um, about four or five years ago, I had a, uh, some friends over to our house and uh, actually one of my closest friends, Blake Barnes, he was a worship pastor here. Now he's a lead pastor. I had him, him and Christina over at our house and it was in the summer and we went outside and I pulled out my lawn chairs and the lawn chairs that I've had, they've been sitting out, they've never seen the indoors, all right? Do you have, do you have furniture like that outside? And so I, you know, set it out and, and Blake comes in, he's out on my deck and, uh, and he sits down on this chair and the whole chair just breaks and he falls right on his back and, and he goes, oh Aaron, I'm really sorry. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry because I've, you know, I should have known that this chair is going to, to break. But, but um, how many of you, and maybe you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever broken a chair before by sitting on it? All right, come on. Just a few months ago, I have a bad habit of leaning back in the chairs at the dining room table. All right, my wife has to keep telling me, Aaron, stop leaning back. And we have these metal chairs, all right, metal chairs, and the back legs just bent back, and I went flying backwards. We had to go buy a new chair, and everyone laughed at the table. And so I've broken a chair, all right? If you're like under a certain weight, you've probably never broken a chair, but... I've broken a chair. Now, if you've never broken a chair, and you go sit on a chair, like my friend did on my patio that one sunny afternoon, you have full confidence that that chair is going to hold you. All right? If you've never broken a chair, you're in confidence I'm relating to faith. You got trust that that table is going to hold you. And so what you do is you go and you sit down with your full confidence on that chair. You are putting your trust in the chair. And at some point in your life, some of you will have the privilege of breaking a chair. Because once you break a chair, 
every chair you sit in is a potential threat. <laughs> and you're looking at that chair. Is that chair going to hold me or not? All right? Is it wobbly or not? In this, you are not going to have full confidence in a chair, at least for a while. So you are going to look at that chair, and you are going to walk up to the chair, and you are going to have a little bit of confidence in that chair, and you're going to sit on that chair kind of like this. All right? And you're just going to test that chair until it can hold your weight. Now, now listen, the chair, the one that doesn't break, in this illustration is Jesus. It is not the confidence that you have that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. So a lot of you think, oh man, to be a Christian, I've got to have a crazy amounts of faith. Like I, I've got to believe in all these different things and I've got to do all these different things and I, I've got to have massive amounts of faith. But what if you have massive amounts of faith in the wrong thing? But the Bible is, no, no, no. Start with small amount of faith in the right thing. And the right thing is Jesus. Even his disciples, Jesus said, come follow me. They didn't fully believe in the divinity of Jesus until he died and rose again. And the Holy Spirit came down. Right? They constantly asked him questions. It was small steps of faith. If you want to have big faith, the Bible doesn't demand it, but it's living a life of small daily steps towards Jesus. Are you with me, church family? Myth number two, that reason or facts alone can get me to faith in Jesus. Reason or facts alone can get me to faith in Jesus. I've been studying the Bible for 22 years. Uh, all of my adult life, I've been studying the Bible. I've been a pastor for 20. It is, I don't know anything else, all right? And out of the 22 years I've been studying the Bible, I've seen a lot of people come to know Jesus. Hundreds, thousands possibly come to know Jesus. And out of the 22 years that I've seen people come to know Jesus, I've never seen someone argued into believing in Jesus. I've never seen a debate where someone at the end says, well, that's a good argument. I'm going to believe in Jesus. Uh, when we were in, in Bible college, we would go to Santa Monica. Anybody been in downtown Santa Monica? I don't know if it's like this anymore. But like in the early 2000s, I mean, there, it was like a circus down there. Like all these entertainers, like on the streets. It was really cool. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, there would be like an evangelist get up on, uh, did you ever see this guy? Like he'd get up like on a box and he'd have a mic and a speaker. And he'd be like yelling like you're going to go to hell and you're going to do all this stuff. And these people would come up and try to argue with them. And he would just kind of like beat them down and debate them uh, uh, about uh, Christianity. And I've never seen someone at the end of that, say, oh man, you're right. Like, I want to give my heart to Jesus. <laughs> like, I just haven't seen it. By the way, I think apologetics is important to know why you believe, what you believe. But I've never seen anyone argue or reasoned into faith. Now, there is a great philosophical faith uh, debate between faith and reason. Faith is this, a lot of people think it's sort of this blind leap like kind of stepping off a cliff and just like, you know, you're just gonna jump and just hope like God like holds you and uh, you know, uh, people who don't uh, have faith in Christ might say, well, it's a, kind of an emotional decision. Faith is all emotional. 
And, and then reason would be kind of uh, a scientific, like you'd look at empirical data, you'd look at the history, you'd look at facts, and you determined what you intellectually believe, and people would say, well, that's all intellectual. I happen to believe that we have a faith that's a reasonable faith. A, a faith that you don't have to check your brain at the door to walk in and understand and believe. It's not a blind faith. There's nothing really in the Bible that talks about a, a leap of faith, right? Again, it's like small amounts of faith in the right thing. And, um, and we have a reasonable faith. I remember uh, a long time ago, uh, I went to Golfsmith to, to try out some new clubs. And I remember like the guy, we were talking about what I do. It was actually when I first came to Newburgh. Uh, and... Um, and he was like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm a pastor. And we were talk just talking about faith. And he's like, he goes, well, that's really nice. He's, and I was like, do you go to church? He goes, or do you believe anything? He's like, no, I'm a rational person. Have you ever heard someone say that? I was like, yeah. And I, I said to him, I said, yeah, that's great. I'm a rational person too. And, and there's this idea that like, that faith is irrational. That faith is not intellectual or is not intelligent. But faith and reason actually go hand in hand. But what I want to propose is, is that reason alone or facts alone will not save you. There, there is something else. I, there's this interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And uh, it's found in Matthew chapter 16. And the Pharisees kind of in the, in the antagonists of Jesus in the Bible. And uh, there were some good Pharisees, but uh, by and large, they were trying to attack Jesus and trap Jesus. And the Pharisees were devout followers of God. I mean, they were all about the rules, and they're all what we might say about big faith. And um, in fact, when there was a rule, like we'll take the Sabbath, like, you know, honor God to the Sabbath, they created, and you can read this, uh, they created 39 additional laws of what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. So they love to like kind of do, 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 like be a part or, or like kind of work their way to God and follow God to the letter and even some of their own uh, made up laws. And Jesus has this interaction with them. He says this in Matthew 16. He says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. You ever ask God for a sign? Like, God, I will believe you if you do this. And Jesus replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. So Jesus is saying, uh, basically, the old adage that we know today is red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors to lie. He says, he says this, he goes, you know how to kind of read and interpret the sky. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jodah. Then Jesus left them and went away. Now you might read this and think, well, man, Jesus seems kind of harsh. Like why wouldn't he just like do a little miracle for them? Like just kind of levitate for a little bit or sort of like a fire in his hand and just whew, like I am God <laughs> because of this it wouldn't matter to the Pharisees because they still wouldn't believe you see at this point in Jesus ministry he's already turned water into wine he, he's already caused the blind to see 
and people have witnessed it. He's cast demons out of people. He's raised people from the dead. I mean, he has produced signs. And his point is that I'm gonna, now, you know, I'm not gonna give you any sign. His point is you've seen all the signs. Another sign is not going to convince you that I am the son of God. Reason alone, intellect alone, will not get you faith in Jesus. The condition of your heart affects your sight and how you interpret the world. What you see depends on on what you experience and what you feel. This is why really smart people can have really bad thinking. This is why two people with the same education can be doctors, same medical degree, same IQ, and they can look at an embryo in a woman's womb and one can say it's a fetus and one can say it's a life. So what's the difference? It's the condition of your heart. It's this transcendence belief in something bigger or greater than yourself. Saving faith cannot rest only on the ground of raw facts. Facts like this, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus is God. Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, the devil believes all these facts. Until your heart is aligned with Jesus, you'll keep asking for signs. All along and missing them, you'll keep wanting miracles to happen while all along they're happening in front of you. Listen, I am convinced. A lot of people say, oh, I want to see a move of God. I want to see miracles. Miracles are happening. Sometimes we're just refusing to see them because our minds are conditioned to see the negative things in life. So what is the truth? The truth is this. I want to close with this. Is that faith is about receiving Jesus and allowing him to change your heart. Faith is about receiving Jesus and allowing him to change your heart. You ever wonder why faith is about our salvation rather than love? Some of you might be wondering, well, Aaron, the five most important decisions, why didn't you start with love? Like I need to choose to love God. It's the greatest commandment, right? And why isn't the second one, I'm gonna choose to love my neighbor? Why would you start with faith? Well, one author, he says this, uh, J. Gresham Machen, he said this, the true reason why faith is given such an exclusive place by the New Testament, so far as the attainment of salvation is concerned, over against love and over against everything else in man, is that faith means receiving something, not doing something or even being something. To say, therefore, that our faith saves us means that we do not save ourselves even in the slightest measure. But God saves us. Your love does not save you. Your love is an overflow of God's salvation in you. See, salvation is a gracious gift of God. And there is nothing you can do to earn it. One scientist says this. He says, faith is reason plus revelation. And the revelation part requires one to think with the spirit as well as with the mind. You have to hear the music, not just read the notes on the page. So where does it leave us? 
as we close today, the very first decision, where does that lead us? To a very simple decision. Very simple. You know the Bible is very simple. We like to complicate it, but it's very simple. I didn't say it's easy. There's a difference between simple and easy. But the, the Bible is simple, and the decision is simple. And growing in faith is about replacing your false belief system with the belief systems in Scripture. But decision number one, the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life is this. Will I put my trust and faith in Jesus? It all starts there. And by the way, it's not a one-time decision, but a daily decision. Maybe 10 or 20 decisions of every day have to do with that one decision. Will I put my trust and faith in Jesus? When I'm facing trials in my life, will I put my trust and faith in Jesus? When my boss reprimands me and I want to lash out, when my family confronts me and I want to defend myself, when I, you, whatever it is, will I, will I choose to put my trust and faith in Jesus? When I lose my job, will I choose to put my faith and trust in Jesus? That is the question. Will I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to ask you in this moment to make that decision if either one, you've never made that decision, or two, Maybe you've made that decision, but you've walked away and you want to say and renew your relationship with Jesus and say, you know what? I want to make that decision again today. I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to receive his trust and give him my trust. Just a little bit. Not a big faith, but a small faith. In a moment, if that's you, I want to ask you to lift your hand, but it's, if that's you and you're, you're saying, you know what, I've never made that decision or I, I want to give my life to Jesus or I want to put my tr trust and faith in Jesus again because I haven't done so in this season. If that's you with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just slip up your hand if that's you? Amen, I see your hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? If you're online and you're watching this, you can text the word decision to the number on the screen and just let us know. If you're gonna come to know Jesus, come back to know Jesus. God, we love you and we celebrate you today. And God, thank you for making the story of scripture not overcomplicated, but very simple. And I pray today, God, that all of us can continue to put our faith and trust in you one step at a time, one decision at a time. We love you, Jesus, and we praise your name.